Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Today, uh, I'm continuing, actually concluding a series of messages that we've been going through called The Salvation Question. And it's, it's been a series that's dealt with uh, the gospel. What is the gospel? The content of the gospel. And what is the condition for the gospel? How is a person saved? How does a person know they're saved? And perhaps the fitting conclusion for that would be our message today. And that's how to present the gospel clearly. This is where we bring all of our teaching that we've been going through together. And, and how do we actually present that to somebody else? They say, you know, that you really haven't learned something until you can teach it or until you can explain it to someone else. So perhaps the test <clears throat> of explaining how clearly we understand the gospel is in whether we can communi communicate it clearly to someone else. And here I am going to be preaching about clearly communicating and stuttering at the same time. That's going to be fun. So let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we will talk about how to share the gospel clearly. Our Father, uh, the Scripture tells us that we all stumble in our words, and we all sin with our tongues. Let there be no stumbling today, Father, in our thinking or in our speaking about your gospel. May it be clear that we might communicate it clearly to others. I pray that you would help me to make it clear, and to say no more, no less than what your word is directed. And Father, we pray that as a result we'd be better witnesses for you. And so I pray with, uh, that we all, with open hearts, would come before you uh, seeking to improve our witness for Jesus Christ because he has saved us and he wants to save so many others that we know. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I once preached at an evangelistic rally in Dallas. Before the meeting, the pastor who invited me introduced me to a a dear woman there, and he said, I want you to talk to this woman because I'm not quite sure if she's saved or not. So he introduced me to this woman, and we exchanged pleasantries, and I began to ask her my favorite diagnostic questions uh, to find out if she really was a believer or not. As a result of the questions, I found out that I don't really think that she understood the gospel or was a true believer. And so I went through the gospel as clearly as I could with her and asked her if she would like to believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior. And at that time, she did. And so um, together we were able to uh, look to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him for her salvation. Now, after that happened, I said, well, let's go up to your pastor and I want you to tell him what you just did. So we went up to the pastor and um, I didn't quite get the response from her that I thought because she went up to him and she shook her finger in his face and she said, you never made it clear to me. I never understood. Why didn't you make it clear to me? And I don't know who was more embarrassed, me or this pastor who had just graduated from seminary with a Master of Theology degree. But, you know, academic degrees don't guarantee clarity in communicating the gospel. In fact, sometimes we say that... Um, those who graduate from seminary get more confusing or obscure by degrees, if you know what I mean. What we need to be able to do is to communicate the gospel as clearly as possible, which is not always an easy task. There's a lot of baggage that we bring into our gospel presentations, and we end up imitating a lot of others that we hear or say things that sound nice and preach nicely or, or are clever 
type of statements, but sometimes don't clearly communicate the content or the condition of the gospel. You know, what's interesting to me is that in Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul asked the Colossian church to help him, to pray for him, uh, that he would preach the gospel clearly. It's in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 4, beginning of verse 3, actually, he says, praying for us also that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, some Bibles of NIV, the NASB, say that I may preach it clearly or speak it clearly, or I may make it clear. The Apostle Paul is asking for prayer that he would preach the gospel clearly. And if the Apostle Paul had that as his concern, maybe we should as well. The word clear there is the word from which means to manifest or bring out to open or shed light on. Paul wanted to make the gospel clear. You can understand his concern when you understand what is at stake and when we present the gospel to someone. There are souls that hang in the balance. People come to escape hell and to enter into heaven by understanding and appropriating the gospel that Jesus Christ has given us. So there is so much at stake. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of Christ for salvation to everyone who believes. So if it is the gospel that saves, and it has the power to save, then we need to aim it clearly at its target. Give God something to work with. And so it is the gospel that saves people, and there is much at stake when we communicate the gospel. Now, I happen to believe that uh, many people get saved even when the gospel isn't clearly communicated. And I say, thank the Lord for that, that sometimes he saves us in even when we uh, jumble the message or garble the gospel. But I happen to believe that he can save more people if we say it more clearly and that God can use a clear gospel better than he can a fuzzy gospel. Wouldn't you agree with that? So our goal then is to preach it and teach it and speak it as clearly as possible. Now, how about you? Perhaps you've received evangelistic training somewhere. Perhaps you haven't. Perhaps you've wondered about how you can speak the gospel more clearly to others and communicate it in a simple and straightforward way. Maybe we can come, come to some conclusions today. Maybe you've been a little confused about what language is appropriate and what is not appropriate, appropriate and what, what would represent the Bible better than other language. Let me give you today four ingredients for a clear gospel witness that I see from the scripture. Four ingredients for the clear, a clear gospel witness, and the first ingredient has to be a clear motive. And here we're talking about integrity. That means that we do not compromise the gospel in any way for personal gain. Integrity in, gospel, in presenting the gospel means that we are not, we are not changing or uh, confusing our message in order to gain a convert for personal gain, to make a name for ourselves, to look good on a statistical report, or for any other reason, for bragging rights, the gospel deserves to be preached clearly for its own sake and for God's glory. When I was in seminary, I was able to lead a Bible study of uh, Cambodians who had just recently come to our country. And uh, it was a result of one of our evangelistic efforts and and uh, we met in an apartment. I still remember it was the second floor of an apartment. It was kind of hot, especially because so many packed into that apartment, over 20. 
and Karen and I would uh, lead this Bible study through a translator to these you know, Cambodians who had just recently come to America. And uh, at one point in the Bible study, I thought that I had by now explained enough of the gospel so that they might understand. And I, I asked them then at the end of that study, now, is there anyone here who would like to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior today? And if you would, would you please raise your hand so that I can see who you are and talk to you afterwards? Well, guess what? The whole room, every single person raised their hand in response to that invitation. But you know something? I refuse to be too excited about it. Because, you see, there were a lot of barriers in my way, and I wasn't convinced that they had really understood everything that I had said to them. Here was a people completely different from me in language and culture and customs and an understanding, and now I wasn't going to assume right away that they understood everything I said. I was speaking through a translator. How did I know he was communicating clearly? I was talking about concepts like sin and the Son of God, but they were from a Buddhist background, and how did they know exactly? They have a different idea of what sin is. They probably really don't even understand sin as the Bible teaches it, or about a divine person like Jesus Christ. Uh, Asians are known to be very polite people. Maybe they just all raised their hands so they wouldn't offend me. You see, there were so many obstacles that could have been in the way that I refused to believe that all of them were definitely saved because of the invitation I, get, I had given. Maybe they were. But it would have been a dangerous assumption because I don't know what they understood. It would have looked nice to, to tell somebody that everybody in the room got saved. And, and it's often the temptation of a missionary to put down the reports of, so, of how many people uh, were saved at their meetings or for a pastor to report to his denomination about how many baptisms in converts he had that month. But it's a temptation to compromise the integrity of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that he refuses to compromise the integrity of the gospel. Even when he was at his lowest point, when he was discouraged, when he was being challenged, when he was very frustrated, and in fact he says losing heart, he refused to resort to manipulative means. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this section, verses 1 through 6, Paul is saying that uh, we don't lose heart in our gospel message. Even if we don't get the results that we would like to see, we refuse to lose heart because it is God who is doing the work and we're going to continue to preach that message unadulterated. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We do not lose heart. But, he says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Here we see what Paul states negatively and what he states positively about what he will do. Even when he is most discouraged and most tempted to take a shortcut in his ministry, he says that he will not. Negative, negatively speaking, he says that we have renounced the hidden things of shame. He will have nothing to do with shameful practices in his ministry. He, he says they don't walk in craftiness. In other words, they don't try to trick people or manipulate people, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. There's nothing underhanded or hidden in his ministry. It is all open, above board, and honest with the people. He will not distort, dilute, compromise, or adulterate his message for the sake of convenience. When I was a teenager... I found myself with some friends one Friday night not having much to do. And we heard about an all-you-can-eat pizza feast at a church. And so we decided to go because teenagers and pizza are a pretty good mix. 
We went to this meeting and got out of our car, walked up to the front of the building, and there at the door was a, a nice usher with a big smile, and he greeted us, and, and our first question to him was, where's the pizza? And he said, well, we're going to have pizza in a little while, but first you have to sit down and uh, listen to a speaker. Well, we looked at each other. Okay, anything for pizza. So we went into the church, and we sat down about in the middle, and then we heard the evangelist speak. He had, I remember him to this day. He had a lavender suit, a white belt, and white shoes. That's how evangelists dressed in those days, I guess. And he preached this message, and uh, it was a pretty good message. You know, it was a pretty impressive message. But at the end of the message, he said, Now, if there's anyone here in our audience who does not know for 100%, with 100% certainty that they're going to heaven, would you please raise your hand? Now, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, okay? And nobody's watching, so I say, okay, it's all, it's all right, it's safe, I guess. I don't know for sure. So I raised my hand, as did some of the others in the group. And he says, now, everybody who's raised your hand, I want you to stand up where you're at. Well, and I raised my hand, and boy, this would be an embarrassing thing. He knows who I am, and, and, and sit there, the others are looking around, and I guess we better stand up. You know, So we look at each other, and we stand up. He says, now, I want you who are standing to come down the aisles to the front of the church. Well, we looked at each other. We were hungry. Anything for pizza. So we went down to the front of the church and off into a counseling room. And there we talked to a counselor. And I think we talked about some Bible verses. And I think we even prayed with the counselor. But when we left the church, we were no more saved than when we went into the church. But we did get our pizza. It was just cold at the time. We had kind of felt manipulated. Like... Like he, he, he would have embarrassed us if we had not responded to the invitation. And so what we had was, a, the, as a result, was a group of false professors who never really believed. I don't mark that as any, any point in my salvation. Never really believed, but had been manipulated into making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So negatively speaking, Paul says, I don't resort to those manip manipulative means of persuading people. In fact, let me give you a list of some things that he would not do. He would not resort to deceitful practices. We shouldn't resort to things that deceive people. We should be very open and honest with people. I know a minister friend who, who talks about the time when uh, he was invited, before he became a Christian, he was invited to a luncheon. He said I, he told us, he was told by a friend that he, he was invited by a friend to come to a luncheon in which there would be a businessman speaking, and the businessman would tell him how to have uh, uh, just something that would really make a difference in his life, you know, kind of like an Amway meeting, I guess, right? But the but the uh, the person didn't tell him what kind of meeting it was or what would happen. And so he went to the luncheon, and what happened, the businessman did get up and speak, but he also preached the gospel to the people there. And my friend felt trapped and deceived, and he said he was so angry that he sat on his hands literally on the way home so that he wouldn't slug his friend. And that's how mad he was. Paul said he would never resort to deceitful practices. We shouldn't resort to dubious practices. There are some practices that are more on the borderline, you see. They're not outrightly deceitful, but I'm doubtful about whether they're really being above board with people like we should be. For example, a church might have a friend day a day in which everybody invites their friend to church. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we've done that here. But I would encourage those who invite their friends to let them know what they're in for. We're going to hear a speaker who's going to talk about how to have a relationship with God rather than to think that they're coming to church for a free potluck dinner afterwards or something else that would be a little bit less 
than honest. And you know, we always hear about these surveys that are done by churches or organizations where they knock on doors and take a survey of people's religious beliefs. They call them surveys, but the point really is to bring in the gospel witness. I have nothing against going door to door, knocking on doors, but would it really be totally honest to call it a survey to the one who answers the door? Also, negatively speaking, I think Paul would discourage false promises, promising somebody something if they would become a believer in Christ as Savior. You see, sometimes Christians tend to tend to present a picture that if you become a Christian, everything's going to be fine after that, and uh, we're not going to have any problems. But the truth is, is that after a person becomes a Christian, uh, their mates may still divorce them, and their daughter may still want to get her nose pierced, and the IRS still may want to audit you, even though you're a Christian. And so beware of making a false promise that life is going to be rosy, and everything's going to be fine after you become a Christian. A pastor in India told me that, um, he said, we do things differently in America than in America. In America, you often promise people that if you become a Christian, your family life will get all straightened out. He said, in India, we don't promise people that because they look at the, in the Christians in India who usually are the ones who adopt Western values, and they are the ones that are having family problems. He says the Hindu family is much stronger, and the Hindu family doesn't have a problem with divorce. So we don't... We don't use the family as a carrot or as a hook to bring them in to Christianity. We preach the gospel to them, tell them that they need to be forgiven for their sins and have eternal life. Now, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? So be, beware of false promises, of promising people too much um, in the gospel. Beware of sensual appeals to the gospel. You know, there was a cult around, and they're, they're still around. They've diminished a lot in influence. They, they were called the Children of God. The Children of God had something going on back in the 70s, I believe it was. They called it flirty fishing. Are you familiar with that? And what they would do is they would take their, they would usually recruit on college campuses or young people like that, and they would send their converts out into the bars, and their bars and the girls would flirt with guys and invite them to meetings, Bible studies and things afterward, but kind of leave the impression that cookies and punch weren't all that was for dessert. They called it flirty fishing. They were actually using their sexual appeal to, to bring guys into their meetings. Well, you know, we would never do something like that as Christians. Um, but would we, would we use the gospel as, or, or would we use an invitation for single people to come and meet the girl or guy of your choice? You see, beware of sensual appeals. Would we promise somebody, if they became a believer, that they would prosper financially or that they would be healed from their disease. The promise of the gospel is the promise for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, not the satisfaction of our physical needs. Missionaries overseas warned, warned of rice Christians when they worked in the Far East. A rice Christian is someone who would become a, a convert superficially so that they could get the rice that the missionaries were always handing out. And so they would have a tendency to say yes to anything the missionaries said and to adopt their message very readily. So beware of the sensual appeal. One more thing. Beware of what I call trivialized pursuits. Beware of trivializing the gospel. I heard of a church making a competition out of visitation. I don't know what the prize was, but maybe a free dinner for two to the person who would visit the most people or win the most converts on a Monday night. I know someone who belonged to a campus ministry and they were under great pressure to share their faith 
and to share it with a certain number of people every day. And he was under such pressure that one time he, he, uh, he says he witnessed to a, a uh, potted plant and he listed it on his form as fern. I know that uh, we live in a big world and uh, uh, people have a lot of different ideas about how to share the gospel. And I really don't want to condemn uh, many of the ways that are out there, everything from gospel blimps to holding up a sign that says John 3.16 at a football game may have their place in our big world. I remember talking to a young lady one time. She was in her early 40s and uh, in my office, and I, I asked her, she said she became a Christian about 10 years ago. I asked her how she became a Christian. She said, I, I read a Barney the Christian Bear comic book of my daughter's. Well, so God can use Barney the Christian Bear comic books. And uh, we have to be aware that God can use a lot of different means to bring people to himself. All I'm saying is let's be careful not to trivialize the gospel or to present it flippantly as if it were not very important and very serious. But, you know, D.L. Moody used to say when he was criticized for his evangelistic methods, which were kind of new in those days, and whenever he was criticized for how he brought people to Christ, he would say, well, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you're not doing it. And so I would agree with him, and I'm very hesitant to criticize, but let's keep the gospel very serious and not make it a flippant thing. Now, Paul said those things negatively. He wouldn't use those kind of means and resort to those kind of tactics to bring people to Christ. But he says in a positive way in verse 2, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. By manifestation of the truth. Now, that word manifestation in my Bible is the same word manifest or clear that we saw in Colossians 4.4. 4 where he said, I want to preach it clearly. Paul says, we're going to preach it out in the open. We're going to preach it with light, and there's not going to be anything hidden. And that truth is going to commend itself to every man's conscience, whether they're saved or unsaved. They know what our motives are going to be, that they're going to be pure motives. They know, they're going to know that we're not hiding anything. And better than that, he says, and it'll be in the sight of God. God himself will know that we are preaching in truth and in clarity. I remember two seminary students arguing one time. I overheard them in the in the snack room of the seminary. And um, they were arguing over the interpretation of a passage. And one was just about to convince his friend that the traditional interpretation was not right, but his was better. And his friend said, uh, yeah, but mine preaches better. It'll preach. Our standard has to be better than it'll preach. We have to have integrity as to what the word of God is saying, not just whether it sounds good when we say it. And so Paul was wanting to get his gospel out in the open. And the reason that he was so concerned about it being out in the open and, and manifest is because of what he was up against. In verses 3 and 4, he said, For if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul says, Paul recognized that he was in a mortal spiritual battle for people's minds and hearts, and that the God of this world, Satan, had placed a veil of darkness over people's minds, a supernatural spiritual veil, so that people would not understand the clear truth of the gospel. And the only bullet that would pen penetrate this thick and dark spiritual veil is the bullet of the power of the gospel when it is preached with light. And the same God, verse 6, who commanded light to shine out of darkness will command light to shine into the hearts of these unsaved people 
who are veiled by Satan so that they can be saved. But in order to give God an opportunity to work, our gospel has to be open. It has to be light. It has to be manifest in, in an honesty and integrity. That bullet needs to be well aimed. When we get in the way, all the power in the world, if not aimed on target, will not be able to save a person. And that's why Paul said in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Paul says, that's why I don't promote myself. Only God can save people. That's why we're, we're trusting in God and his gospel to save them. It doesn't do me any good to, to promote the name of the Apostle Paul or First Antiochian Church or whatever. It doesn't do anybody any good to promote those things. Let's elevate Jesus and get out of the way and let his power save people. Paul says, we don't preach ourselves. And the word preach there is from the, the Greek word that means herald. And a herald was someone who took a master's announcement to the public marketplace and heralded that message. It was not his message, it was his master's message. It, it is said that the herald was to be lost in his message, and he was only to repeat what the master had told him to say. You see, the most important thing about, the, the God, about preaching the gospel is the gospel, not the preacher. And a herald is somebody who just simply repeats the gospel. The acid test of a true witness is what that witness does when no one responds. When we're tempted to compromise or to change our message or to put pressure or to manipulate someone into a decision. When our last day of Bible study came with our Cambodian group, they communicated a message to me through, to Karen and I through the translator. Uh, they talked among themselves and they talked to the translator and then he turned to, turned to us and he said, we want to thank you for advertising Jesus Christ to us. And that's what Paul is saying. We don't advertise ourselves, we advertise Christ. So the first ingredient of a clear gospel witness is a clear motive. You have to be pure in your motives or you will eventually corrupt your message for expediency or selfish purposes. Secondly, you have to have a clear content. The second ingredient, a clear content, we've discussed at length here on Sunday mornings. We've said that there are two great propositions to the gospel as explained in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead. And that is the very core and the very heart of the gospel. And so we don't need to go into the content of the gospel again. We said that the common errors in communicating the gospel message is sometimes to communicate too little. We simply say, well, God loves you. Well, that's true, but that doesn't really tell a person what they must believe in to be saved. It doesn't say anything about sin. It doesn't say anything about faith, that God loves you. Or sometimes we say too much. We give a person a lesson in the Bible, starting with Genesis and go all the way through Revelation, or sometimes... We give them a lesson in theology with all kinds of words and concepts that they don't really need to know in order to be saved. So beware of saying too little or saying too much. Paul said the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again. And if we can explain those two concepts simply and concisely, then a person will know what they need to know to be saved. The third ingredient of a clear gospel witness is a clear condition. I was uh, part of our ministerial alliance here in Burleson. And when they decided to reach the whole city with a survey, and part of that survey was handing out a gospel tract 
that uh, a smorgasbord of pastors had put together. And I, I looked at the gospel track, and it said that you, in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus as your Savior. And I said, Amen. And then it went on to say that you must confess your sins, call on the name of the Lord, open the door of your heart, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and let him take control of the throne of your life. And uh, I said to myself, my goodness, it started out clear, but it didn't end up that way. I really believe that that language was not the clearest. Not that it's all wrong, but not the clearest language. So I decided, when I asked if we could use our own literature, and they said, no, for everybody to use the same literature. And so I decided better be better not to confuse people at this point. Let's talk about some of the popular language that we use today that I don't think is as clear as could be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and many, many other places in the Bible that the condition for salvation is belief. And by this you were saved when you believed, he said. And so does our faith in, alone in Christ alone. And we've said that over and over again. And uh, let's talk about some of the language that is very popular to use and, and see what we're really saying. For example, sometimes people say, ask Jesus into your heart. That's the condition for salvation. Now, we understand that the heart is the center of our being, and it really, it's who we are. Uh, but asking Jesus into your heart can sometimes confuse people. And I tell you who it really does confuse is the children. Children who tend to think in concrete terms, who think of a heart. If you ask Jesus into your heart, then there must be a door there somewhere on your heart. Is the door your belly button, Mommy? Where is the door to your heart? How do we get in? How does Jesus get in? It's like the little girl who was driving down the road with her mother, and her mother was explaining what it means to have Jesus in her heart. And so the little girl leaned over and put her, put her ear to her chest. And she said, what are you doing? She said, I'm listening for Jesus. And the mother said, well, what's he, what's he doing? She says, I don't know, but it sounds like he's making coffee in there. <laughs> so, you see, it, it invites confusion. Ask Jesus into your heart. But the condition of the scripture is believe or trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Another phrase that we use quite a bit is give your heart to God or give your life to God. I actually have a Halloween track in my possession, and the Halloween track's ends by saying this, well, thanks again for the treat, but the best treat for me would be for you to give your heart to Jesus. Now, again, think like a little six-year-old, five-year-old child. Give your heart to Jesus on Halloween. Boy, that's a pretty illustration, isn't it? Something that would belong in a haunted house, you know, and kind of icky and gooey heart here, Jesus. But that's the way a child thinks. I know one child who was asked to give his heart to Jesus, and he started crying, and, and the man said, why are you crying? He said, well, if I give my heart to Jesus, how am I going to live? You see? Well, that's the way children will think. Now, the issue in salvation is not what we give to Jesus. It's what he gives to us. Isn't that true? Isn't, aren't we asking him for eternal life and a new heart? And it's not really what we give to him. And the point is, is that the Bible really doesn't talk about giving your heart to Jesus. It talks about believing in him as Savior. There's other language, I think, that is confusing. For example, invite Christ into your life. Now, this is a real courteous approach, I have to admit. We invite him to come into our, our lives. But when you think about it in the Bible, it's really he that invites us to come to him. Jesus is the inviter, and we are the responders to him. Now, I know that uh, many people like to use Re Revelation chapter 
3 and verse 20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And I used to use this verse for many, many years until I realized that what Jesus was really speaking to was a church, a church made up of all kinds of people. But he was calling the church back to fellowship with himself more than he was calling them to salvation. And so, you know, I used to use the verse myself. I am not so enthusiastic about it these days because I, I still think it's a little bit confusing, especially for that child who's still looking for that doorknob to your heart. How about receive Christ as your Savior? Now, I don't want to criticize this one too much because I find myself using this language sometimes. And in fact, the, the word receive is in the Bible a couple times, like in John chapter 1, verse 12. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons, sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. The interesting thing, though, is that the word received in both places there in Colossians 2, 6 is used in the past tense to describe something that's already happened. And in 1 John 1.12, for example, it tells us what that received is really the consequence or result of believing in him to as many as believe in him. You see? So it's used in the past tense to describe something that happens to people who believe in him. And so even though the word received is used a couple times, um, and, it, and it's not that bad, there can still be problems with it. Well, how about make Christ Lord and Savior? You must make Christ Lord and Savior in order to be saved. The truth is, is that no one can make Christ Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, this, that God the Father has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. See, we can't do it anyway. God is the one who does it. Now, what, what they usually mean is that you have to subjectively place yourself under his authority and surrender all of your life to him, which brings up the next one, make Christ Lord of your life. But we've examined sayings like this, too, sayings that, uh, we, that are part of the Lordship Salvation Gospel, which is surrender everything in your life to God, your ambitions and your money and your relationships, and, and put him completely in control of everything, and then you can be saved. And we've talked about the problems with language like that. The main problem being is how do you really know when he has absolute control of your life? And we all know that there are people who get saved and at the same time surrender everything to Jesus Christ. That can be almost a simultaneously simultaneous event. But there are many people who understand more the issue of sin and the issues of control are something that God must work in their lives as time goes on. At least that's how it was for me. And I find myself daily surrendering to Jesus Christ. And so my salvation doesn't depend on the surrender of everyday things. It depends on trusting in him for eternal life. Similar language is uh, found in a very popular track, Put Jesus on the Throne of Your Life. Now this track has been used by good people to lead many other people to a relationship to Jesus Christ. But again, I think the issue is a little bit confused. If we put Jesus on the throne of our life, that means he has control over everything. And the same question applies is, how do we know when he has absolute control? Is the issue in salvation trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins or the control of everything that we do from this point on? Some say in their invitations to confess your sins. But the question is, how many of my sins do I confess? What about the ones I've forgotten? What about the ones I don't even, I'm not even aware of? And then who do I confess them to? If you're speaking to a Catholic, he'll look for a priest. Who do we confess them to? The word confess means to agree with God. And, there's this, and there is the sense in which we must confess that we're sinners. 
But that's different from saying that we must confess every individual sin that we can think of. The symptoms instead of the cause. And the cause is sin. And when we come to God, we confess that we're sinners. And he is able to cure the cause. So don't get sidetracked by the symptoms. And in the same way, repent of your sins is, can sometimes be confusing to a person if they think that they need to turn from every single aspect of, of wrong behavior and begin a different course a different direction because then again salvation would depend on their action and their conduct instead of entrusting in Jesus Christ as Savior do we repent when we're when we're saved I believe that we do I believe that we change our mind or change our heart about uh, who we are but it's not always about sin sometimes we repent about who God is the word repent is sometimes used about a change of mind about good things like in the Old Testament when God repented of his actions and so the word repent has different meanings depending on the context. Beware of confusing the root with the fruit and making people think that they must list their sins and change their conduct and live a certain way in order to have eternal life. And then the final example I'll give is we often say pray this prayer. I got a, a pamphlet on file and it's called God's Anointed Soul Winning Plan. And listen to the words as he teaches Christians how to present the gospel. It says, what I'm going to do toward closing our talk is to say a prayer. And as I say this prayer, you can repeat it softly and he'll come into your heart. But you have to really mean it or the prayer won't work. It's emphasized. Before we pray the prayer, I want to say this. This prayer we're about to pray is a special prayer. Do you need to pray this prayer every day to go to heaven or just once to go to heaven? Now you see the point. We probably think that the author knows what he's talking about and how to be saved, but what he's left is the impression that we have to say a certain magical prayer in order to be saved. That there is a certain special prayer and that we have to really mean that prayer in order to be saved. Again, I think it's something that could be confusing to somebody. Why not say to a person, why don't we pray right now? And you can tell Jesus that you're trusting him for eternal life. And maybe that would be a little bit simpler and clearer. Now, I don't like to pick on people's language, you know, and everything that we've just mentioned has some truth to it and, um, so, and, and or can be uh, say, represent the truth in some way. Uh, not all of them were totally void of truth is what I want to say. But here's my point, and the point that we've been making is that when it comes to the condition for salvation, the Bible gives us clear guidance here and does not misspeak. It does not use this language. The Bible says over and over again, 150 times in the New Testament, 98 times in the Gospel of John, the only book that was written to tell us how to be saved, it tells us believe. The word is believe. Why not be as biblical as the Bible and explain to people what it means to believe? Get yourself a good handful of illustrations that you always will have with you that will explain to people what it means to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, the fourth ingredient of a clear gospel witness is to have a clear invitation. Many times we preach a good gospel but muddle it up in the invitation. And uh, just don't want to say too much here except that uh, an invitation can confuse people. Many times we're confused when a stand-up and come-forward invitation is given. I don't have anything against that kind of an invitation if it is explained correctly. But sometimes people are left with the impression that they have to come to the front of a church in order to be saved. 
And so their salvation depends not only on trusting in Jesus, but on the, the, the steps that they actually take to get to the front of the church. Do you realize that the Stand Up and Come Forward invitation is only as new as the 1800s and that it did not even exist before that time? And there are some people every week who will come forward at an invitation like that, and there are others who will never come forward. There are others who just when they hear the, the tune, just as, a, just as I am, will get up and come forward. And the others will be sitting in their seat, uh, and you'll never get them to come forward. They're singing to themselves, I shall not be moved. And you're not going to get them up with a bulldozer and a team of horses. So when we get, if we were going to give an invitation to stand up and come forward in church, we need to explain exactly why. There are some good reasons to come forward. You might want to invite people to come forward to receive counseling about what it means to be a Christian or to make a public confession. You believe in Jesus as your Savior. Even this morning, would you like to come forward and share that decision with us? I'm saying be careful about how we use that. Uh, some people say bow your heads and close your eyes. Uh, in fact, we do that here quite a bit, don't we? Uh, one preacher accidentally said, uh, uh, bow your eyes and close your heads. Um, but you know, the interesting thing is, when Jesus saved people, they used to have their eyes open, didn't they? In fact, Jesus was in the business of opening eyes. You know, this isn't a seance where if you open your eyes, you break the spell. You can get saved looking right at me, at the preacher. You can get saved with your eyes wide open. Jesus can open the eyes of your heart. So let's be careful that you have to have some kind of spell that can be broken with our eyes closed. Uh, there are other invitations that can be given. Raise your hand, sign a card, pray a prayer. And all of those things, we just need to be careful to make the issue and not confuse the issue that salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the issue. And we don't want to weigh that down or give people an impression that there's anything they have to do or any steps that they have to perform in order to be saved. Well, when we turn to scriptures, you know, they're pretty silent about how invitations should be given. And so we don't want to argue two or four invitations from Scripture. We just want to be consistent with what the Bible does say, that the issue is faith alone and Christ alone. And there's nothing that we can do to be saved. In fact, if I give an invitation and somebody comes forward or raises their hand or signs a card, you know what I'm thinking to myself? They're already saved before they did that. They're saved because of what they heard. If somebody decides to stand up and come forward in church, they've probably already made the decision in their heart to trust in Jesus as Savior. Wouldn't you agree? And so what they do after that is not essential to their salvation. Well, when we preach the gospel, we're not always as clear as we could or should be. But isn't it good to know that we have a God who can use us in our imperfections? And he saved us in spite of an unclear message, perhaps. And he saved people through us in spite of our unclear language. But if the Apostle Paul had to pray that he could preach the gospel clearly, and if I struggle, as I do, to always keep it clear, then how much should all Christians be careful to keep the gospel clear? What's at stake is the eternal salvation of our loved ones around us. If people make a profession when they didn't understand, they become a false professor. They become someone who will say they're a Christian but may go to their death and to eternal condemnation with a false assurance of their salvation. We may have those who come into the church or into the ranks of the saved just through an emotional decision. And we want to be aware of that. So at the end of this series on the salvation question, 
Let's commit to knowing the gospel that God has given us, to understanding it ourselves, and to communicating it clearly to others, to be able to communicate its content clearly to others and its conditions to others, and to invite people to come to Jesus Christ as Savior in a way that will not contradict our integrity or the integrity of the Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that when you speak to us, it is with clarity and with no stuttering. And I pray, Father, for all of us that we would improve in our presentation of the gospel to others. Help us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul preached it, simply and clearly. And may as a result we see that there are people who will respond to its freeness and to its grace and to the great love of God that saves without conditions, to the unconditional acceptance that he gives us. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not assured of your unconditional acceptance, who has been trying to work their way to earn your favor, show them how futile that is and that you've already accepted them, that you've already died for them, you've already raised from the dead for their eternal life. And may they in simple faith come to you and accept that free gift with thankful hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.